our three boys all share a bedroom. And sometimes, and, and here lately, uh, we were having a little bit of difficulty getting them to settle down and go to sleep. Well, who am I kidding? Jack. We were having trouble getting Jack to settle down and go to sleep. Uh, and so I, we, we were trying different things. We tried music, um, and after about the 750th time that Thomas played the soundtrack to Hamilton, we decided that wasn't working. So I thought, let's try audiobooks. Give them something to listen to, give them something to focus their mind on, and maybe that would help relax them. And so we tried audiobooks, and it worked. They had little bedtime stories. And I found an audiobook that had Bible stories, like Bible bedtime stories. And so we would play that, uh, and they would fall asleep listening to Bible stories. And it was so great, because after a few days, I was taking, uh, taking the boys to school, and Oliver was telling me all about Noah and the ark and the animals. And I said, man, you really listened to those stories, didn't you? He goes, yeah. He said, but I'm sad about Jesus. And I said, well, why are you sad about Jesus, man? And he said, well, he died. And I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, well, that makes me sad. And I said, but three days later, he came back to life. And Oliver said, he did? He had fallen asleep after the death, but he didn't make it to the resurrection. So spoiler alert, he, uh, he comes back. Um, sometimes we don't get the full story. Now, for Oliver, he didn't have the full story because he didn't know that story well enough already. And so in listening to it, he didn't know exactly how it ended. He didn't put that together. For a lot of us, we don't see the full picture sometimes because we've heard the story too often. We, we've, we've read these stories, and we know the life of Christ, and we know the Gospels, and sometimes we breeze right over things that need a little more attention. That's what this series that we started last week is about, the people Jesus met. We're looking at not just... Uh, getting to know Jesus, and certainly we understand that to know God is to know Christ, and to know Christ is to know God, and to do that, we have to study his word, we have to study the scripture, we have to be in communication, we have to be in prayer. We've talked about those things before, but we're going to look at the story of Jesus' life and pay particular attention in the coming weeks to the people he met, the interactions he had. These people that come in and out of the story very quickly but that represent qualities that we see in ourselves sometimes. Because if we can understand how Jesus interacted with these people, and we can relate to them, then we can understand how Jesus and how the Father sees us, and maybe glean some encouragement from it. And we're going to start today with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And the verses that Christian read are part of the conversation that she had with Jesus. This is in John chapter 4, and it takes place between verses 1 and verse 42. Now, we see this woman here in this story, and then we never see or hear from her again that we know of, but these 42 verses make it the longest of these such interactions that we see in Scripture. In terms of total number of verses, if that's how we're measuring, it is the longest interaction that we have. Now, what do we know about this woman? Well, honestly, not very much. We certainly don't have any of, of her backstory in and of itself in the text. All we have is what Jesus reveals in the conversation and some context. So let's, let's read 
in John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. By the way, Jesus did this a few times. Every time things got a little heated between him and, uh, and the powers that be, he would go lay low for a little while. Uh, and, and not because he feared death or feared their wrath, but because it wasn't time for that to happen yet. So Jesus is kind of laying low uh, in Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's not true. He didn't. In fact, the Jews made a habit. In fact, it was required that they not pass through Samaria in order to go from one of those places to the other. He didn't have to. They took the long route all the time to avoid going to Samaria. Now, when John says, John's not being untrue here, and, the God, and this gospel writer is not uninspired, when he says he had to go, he had to go because he was compelled to go, because he chose to go. But it's not had to go in the way we would describe having to go. We might say, uh, I might say if, if, I'm going up to Madison, I have to go through New Glarus. Because from here to there, that's the way we go. Okay, I could drive to Janesville and then go up to Madison if I wanted to, but that's the way we go, so I have to go that way. So Jesus, John says, had to go through Samaria because he chose to go through Samaria. He had a purpose in going through Samaria. He didn't have to in, in that it was forced of him or there was no other route. Jesus chose to be where he is in this story. And that is the most important thing you can know going in. He didn't have to be here. He chose to. Let's keep reading. And so, Verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So there's some history here. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Second important point to set the scene. It's the afternoon. It's later in the day. Now, verse 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Let's put this together. This gives us a little understanding in the context of who this person was. Traditionally, we know from historians and scholars that in most towns and most places where women would go to, and it was customarily the women, would go to draw water from a well, they went in the morning, first thing, and drew their water for the day. And it was kind of a social event. It's like going out with your friends to get coffee in the morning. You know, I, I had a couple of really good friends in high school. We're still best friends. And every Friday during football season, every Friday morning, we would get up super early and go to this little greasy spoon diner uh, in downtown Searcy. And this was back when you could still smoke indoors. It's weird to remember this, but there were always these old men that sat at the front of this restaurant and they would just chain smoke for hours because they apparently had nowhere to go. And we would go and we would get a big omelets and ham and, and, and sausage and we would just eat and, and, and we'd stay there for about an hour and a half. We would go to school then about 7.30, 7.45. We stank like, like, like Winston cigarettes and, and that was our Friday morning every week during football season, a great little ritual we had for, for a few years. That was our social time. That was our time together. In the tradition of this place and this time, the women of this town would get together in the morning and draw their water and socialize those who were acceptable in society. 
This woman went in the afternoon. Now, based on that fact and what we're about to learn that Jesus is going to reveal in this story, she was an outcast. She was a social pariah. She was not allowed in polite company. She wasn't accepted amongst her own people. Now consider, if you will, for a minute, what we know about Samaritans. They were not considered to be purebred or considered to be a part of the Jewish community or the, or the nation of Israel. They were outcast as a people. They were outcast as a people on the basis of their ethnicity and their heritage. And here was a woman within that society that was an outcast of it. Can you think of anyone who would have been lower in terms of how they would have been seen than this woman? An outcast of an outcast group. That's what we can glean and understand about her based on what we've read so far. So the Samaritan woman comes to draw her water in the afternoon when no one else is around. And, and by the way, also let's not forget she was a woman. So you have uh, a group of people who just by their gender are not considered to have standing in, the, in a Semitic society. Okay, they, they don't, they're, they're property. So they don't have standing. They don't speak to men, you know, that sort of thing. That's her place. So she's got three strikes. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong nationality. And she's had the wrong lifestyle to be considered acceptable. And what should she see when she arrives at the well? She comes and Jesus is there in verse 7. And he says to her, give me a drink. Now, whoa, here's a man, a Jewish man, asking a Samaritan woman who is not acceptable in Samaritan society to give him a drink, to do a service to him. Now, it says in verse 8, his disciples have gone into the city to buy food. Okay, They were, they were on a Starbucks run, and he's sitting here thirsty at the well, and he asks this woman to draw water. The Samaritan woman said to him in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He turns it around on her. He says, If you knew who was asking you, you wouldn't leave it at me asking you for a drink. You'd be asking me for a drink. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get that living water? She's still thinking literal. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Now, there is some consensus amongst uh, biblical scholars that she's being a bit facetious here in her question. Are you greater than Jacob? A little bit of tongue-in-cheek snicker, asking how he intends to get this living water. Jacob gave us this well and drank from it himself, his sons and his cattle. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, we are familiar with this passage. We see Jesus beginning this conversation with this woman. And we see, A, he didn't have to be there. She was not the kind of person that anybody would be having a conversation with. And yet here is Jesus having this conversation. What can we learn in this story to this point? And what we will we continue to learn in this story? Well, first and foremost, I think the first lesson we can learn 
from Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman is that Jesus is drawn to those considered outcast. Jesus is drawn to the outcast. That's who he seeks to be around. Look at the entire story of the Gospels. Look at all four of the Gospels together. Who is he regularly having interactions with? The outcasts. Everybody, almost everybody in this series that we're going to talk about would have been someone that a person who Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God, a rabbi, whatever, whatever, however you want to look at Jesus, nobody in that position would have ever had anything to do with most of the people we'll talk about in this series. And I don't think there's anybody who was less acceptable than this Samaritan woman. Even Zacchaeus, the tax collector, people would have been more likely to have conversation with than this woman. And this is significant because what Jesus, this is early in the gospel account. And in John's account, which focuses so heavily on the deity of Christ, on the divine nature of Jesus, there's something very significant that's about to happen in this story. And he chooses to do it with this woman. So Jesus is drawn to the outcast. It's particularly noticeable uh, in contrast to the previous chapter, because in the previous chapter, Jesus spends his time with Nicodemus, with an elite, with a respected teacher. Jesus spends his time with the acceptable. And they don't really see eye to eye, he and those who are respectable. Because those who are respectable, those who are accepted, those who are part of the in crowd, they, they don't have any trouble. They felt like they had their ticket punched. They felt like they already had a relationship with God. So why do they need Jesus? That's one of the things that is so important about us and about our relationship with Christ. One of the most important aspects of it is our ability to recognize, hey, we're of no value on our own. It's only through Christ that we are made whole, only through Jesus that we are made acceptable. And we have to let go of our own achievement and ability in order to let Jesus work in us. There's a humbling that we need to accept. Well, the Samaritan woman didn't need to humble herself. The world had humbled her enough. And Jesus was drawn to the outcast. Let's keep reading. Let's see how this conversation goes with Jesus. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She says, if you know a place I can get water that's always replenished, I would love to get, get some of that because I wouldn't have to come down here to this well anymore. Now, can you imagine if this, one of the greatest sources of shame in your life was that you had to go to the well to get water or in our kind of, of vernacular, maybe you have to go to the grocery store and that's the greatest shame in your life because you have to go when no one else is there. And, and if someone said, hey, I know a place that will deliver your groceries for you. That's, that's kind of realistic to us today now, isn't it? I know a place where you can get it delivered too. You don't ever have to go out. Boy, that is a miracle. That's a miracle. We would love that. And the greatest source of her shame was this interaction that she had to have by going and avoiding people at the well. And Jesus is saying, I know a place you can get water that's everlasting. She says, I want some of that. Give me some of that. And he says to her, now what perception Jesus has, he says, go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered, I have no husband. Now, he's getting right to the heart and the source of her shame. He's getting right to the heart and the source of her status as an outcast. He says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Now, that's important because in this culture, in this society, you didn't have a man, you didn't have anything. That's why the old law provided a way for women to be remarried if something happened to their husband. It provided for their care. Remember in the old law that if your husband died, you got to marry the brother? Whew, what a... My brother is like 25 and, you know, just starting life. So I hope that... I hope I stay healthy for Nikki's sake, but I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting... That's an, you know, that's so weird to us. But that they did that to provide. They did that to provide for these... Because if you didn't have anyone, you were on your own. There was no social safety net. You, you had to rely on the community. And she says, I don't have a husband. Now, if you didn't have a husband... That meant one of a couple of things. Either you were a widow and likely destitute if you had no children, or you were something else. I think you know what that something else would be. The women without a husband. The unacceptable. Now for her, she's living in shame, likely wearing clothes that represented her status. They had widow's clothes, and they had not widow's clothes. Now, trying to be as polite as possible. But she would have been dressed that would indicate her status. Everything about this story tells us that she hasn't lived the best life. She doesn't have someone caring for her. She doesn't have provision. So what has she done? She's made the most of what she can to be provided for. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you've correctly, this is uh, again in verse 17, you've correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, can you imagine if that's your greatest shame? You've been married five times. They've all either run off on you or you've run off on them or they've died, but either way, you are a shame in your society. And now you have a man who's going to take care of you that you're shacking up with because that's how you can eat, but he's using you essentially. That's the greatest shame in this woman's life. That's how she's living. That is her reality. And here is a perfect stranger that she shouldn't even be talking to that knows her secret, that knows her shame. How terrified do you think she might have been in that moment? How shocked might she have been in that moment? Think about the worst thing you've ever done. Think about the thing you try to keep hidden. Think about the thing that only God knows about you. And imagine that someone pointed it out to you that you'd never met. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, he, he is speaking uh, of things that she would have known, that she would have understood, 
about this idea that, you know, in, in other words, the Jews said, hey, you can't come worship here. The only place it's acceptable to worship is in Jerusalem, and you're not allowed in Jerusalem, you Samaritans. You're not worthy. You're not acceptable to God. And she says, but our forefathers said we worship here on the mountain. Which is it? We have nowhere to go. And Jesus said, yeah, for now, it's this way. Israel was the chosen nation of God because God had a purpose for it, but there's something else coming. There's a new day coming. There's a time where Jerusalem isn't going to be where we worship, and this mountain isn't going to be where we worship. There's going to be something new that's coming. Now, we'll stop here for a second. Because what's about to happen is the first time that it's happened yet in the recorded gospel. Okay? Throughout the gospel of John, the most repeated statement from Jesus is, I am the Christ, the Son of God, essentially. To paraphrase, he repeats over and over that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one whom God sent to deliver salvation. Believe in him and you'll be saved. But this is the first time. He hasn't told anybody who he is yet. Now, some know because they've been told, but he himself has not told anyone yet. And the woman said, as Christian read earlier, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, if the Savior of the world is coming, and if he has arrived, and if he is to make known as a part of his mission on this earth that he has arrived to bring salvation to all, where would he go first to make that announcement? Doesn't it make sense that he would go to the preachers and the pastors and let them spread the word? Doesn't it make sense that he would go to the megachurches and the holiest of holy and tell them so they could know? That's what the common perception would have been. But where does Jesus make this announcement for the first time? Where does he speak the words, I am the Messiah, for the first time? It's a woman who is an outcast gender of an outcast culture in an outcast society. It's the lowest of the low. It's the shameful. It's the sinful. Jesus wants us to know who he is. From this interaction, we can learn these lessons. We can learn that Jesus is attracted to the outcast and that he wants us all to know who he is. That's why he reveals himself to this woman. He wants us to know. Further, he explains to her as the Messiah that this is who he is. He wants this woman to know that salvation is in him. Just as with us, he wants us to know that salvation is in him. If we're placing ourselves in her position, if we're trying to understand Jesus a little bit better through how he interacts, then we have to acknowledge that one of the things he wants to do in his interaction with us is reveal that he is the source of salvation. Also, Jesus knows us and he loves us. He knew this about the woman when he sat down. He went to Samaria to meet her. He went there because he knew she would be there. He already knew about all of the bad things she'd done, already knew about all of her shame, and he went anyway, and he met her, and he told her who he was, and he loved her. Jesus is going to repeatedly meet people who are unacceptable. 
over and over, he's going to have these interactions with people who have some problems. But unlike the religious elite of his day, he doesn't say, fix your problems and come back to me. He says, I'll take you just the way you are. Now be different. Jesus went to the outcast. He wanted them to know who he was. He wanted them to know that salvation was in him because he knew who they were and he loved them. And if you feel like you can relate to this woman, then you should know this morning that Jesus loves you because he knows you. Nothing's hidden from him. And he loves you anyway. Now let's keep reading for a minute because there's more to this story. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came. They were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet, think about that. They were amazed he had been talking to a woman, first of all. Okay, Never mind the other stuff. Yet no one said, uh, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So Christ is it. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples are saying to one another, hey, no one brought anything else to eat, did they? Did someone else, did, did you bring a sack lunch? I didn't see it. They're wondering how he got this food. They don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus says, my food, what sustains him, think about that, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields and they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He is telling them about spreading the gospel. He is telling them about the Great Commission. He is telling them about evangelism and growing the kingdom. They don't quite understand it yet. But listen, from that city, this is Sychar, many of the Samaritans, verse 39, believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Think about that. Think about where this woman was when this day started. Avoiding going out because that was the social time at the well. Finally being able to go because no one else was around. Her shame could be hidden. She goes and she meets this strange man who decides to talk to her. Terrifies her by telling things that she thinks no one else, uh, she doesn't want anyone else to know. That she tries to keep to herself. That she tries to avoid. And then he says, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And I've chosen to come and talk to you. And what does she do with that? The final point that we make this morning in this interaction is that Jesus knows that we can share and should share the gospel message with all we meet. That is our call in life. That is our food to do the will of the Father. To reap the harvest that's been sown. To win souls for the kingdom. Jesus is drawn to the outcast. And you may feel sometimes like the outcast. Jesus wants us to know who he is. He chooses to come to us and deliver to us a message. He wants us to know that salvation is in him. He knows who we are and he loves us anyway. And we can and should share the gospel. Why is it that Jesus seems to know this woman, understand her so well? I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 3, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 3, Jesus, or excuse me, not God, 
is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah about Israel. Now, we think about this woman having five marriages and living with another guy and how scandalous that is. And I think certainly in, in, the, in the church today, we still look at divorce and things like that as a very scandalous thing. Did you know God's been divorced? Did you know that? When he looks at someone who's been through that, he understands them and he knows them and he feels for them. And here Jesus sits with this woman who has lived a faithless life, who has not kept the traditions and the law according to, to marriage, and there's an understanding. First one of Jeremiah chapter 3, God says if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated? Let's skip down to verse 8. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. God had to divorce his people because they committed adultery. God had to divorce his people because they were unfaithful. You don't think God understands the pain of divorce and separation? I think he probably understands more than most of us in this room do. And as Jesus sat across the well from this woman who had been through five marriages and was living with a man just so she could survive, he looked at her shame and he said, I understand. I understand. And I love you. I love you so much. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's not going to be a secret for very long. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who's come to set you free. And what did she do with that knowledge? The woman who was shamed, who was outcast, who was ostracized, who lived on the margin, went straight into town and told anyone who would listen, he's here. The first evangelist, the first respondent to the Great Commission was a woman with a bad reputation who Jesus chose to go and see. Not all of these stories and interactions in this series might speak to you. Not all of us are tax collectors or rich young rulers or adulterous women or, or Samaritans. <laughs> but in some way, we might find a little bit of understanding of these people. We might see a little bit of ourselves in these stories. And when you do, look how Jesus treats them. Because that's how he looks at you, his children. Asking you to come to him. Entrusting you with a message that you can carry. Jesus wants us to know who he is. He is drawn to us. He loves us in spite of what he knows about us. And he asks us to take this message to others. If you feel shamed, if you feel outcast, if you feel you've made too many mistakes to have a relationship with God, and certainly you're too messed up to share the gospel with somebody, I mean, who are you? Read John chapter 4. <laughs> you ain't nothing compared to that. Jesus can do amazing things with you. God can use you in ways you've never thought about if you'll let him.
No one is too shameful to receive the gospel. What we do with it after we receive it is the question. Would you receive it this morning? Will you let it work in your heart? Will you let it change your life? If so, I hope that you'll take whatever steps are necessary. And if that involves a public confession, accepting Jesus in baptism or asking for him to work in your life and availing yourself of the encouragement and love of your church family, won't you make that need known this morning as we stand and while we sing together?